What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Great to have you back. My name is Dr. Elise Cortez. I'm here in Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is a thought leadership series that enlightens and inspires listeners with insights from distinguished business leaders and subject matter experts. Our conversations are designed to elevate your thinking and entice you to take a conscious and inspirational approach toward leadership and business. Before we talk about our guest today, let me share two announcements with you. First, uh, we've launched Gusto Now, which is an online uh, e-learning platform Platform. It features leadership development and professional development courses, and we do it in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. You can learn more at gusto-now.com. Secondly, my book is out. I, here it is right here. It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Unleash Passion and Elevate Cause. It comes out on November 17th. It's, it's available now on Amazon. I am going to do a book launch on Monday, November 16th from 12 to 2 Central Time. You can register for that free event at gusto-now.com and go into the events tab and finding it there. I'm going to be interacting and sharing a bit from where the book came from, some key concepts, take um, Q&A, and give away some prizes. So I hope we'll see you there. All right, now on to this week's program. With us today is Steve Brown, who is a futurist, author, and consultant with 30 years of experience in high tech. He is the former futurist and chief evangelist at Intel Corporation, and his consulting practice today helps companies prepare for the future, become more resilient, and drive innovation into their business. He's the author of The Innovation Ultimatum, How Six Strategic Technologies Will Reshape Every Business in the 2020s. It's a how-to guide on digital transformation, which is the focus of our conversation today. He joined today from Portland, Oregon, which is my old stomping grounds. Steve, welcome to Working on Purpose. Elise, it's a great pleasure to be here. You know, before we get into this, I'm going to tell you a big fat thank you for writing this book. I found this so compelling, so so fascinating, and it gave me such access to technology in a way that opened my eyes to possibilities and was incredibly riveting. So I want to thank you very much for writing this book. It's incredible. Oh, I appreciate that very much because I poured my heart and soul into it. And I'm actually glad that we found each other because as I was researching you and finding out about your show, I realized we care about a lot of the same stuff. So I'm, I'm glad that the book resonated. And I hope that uh, your listeners and viewers are going to enjoy it too. I think they will. And just for those of you who are watching, let me show it to you really quick so it's easy to find on Amazon. The the Innovation Ultimatum, great book. All 280 pages of it. Thank you very much. And yes, your heart and soul is in there. So um, so to orient our leaders, our readers who haven't actually gotten hold of it just yet, and because we're going to talk through this, if you could, in your words, talk about those six technologies that you describe. Sure. So as I was spending time, I, I'm a speaker for a living. Uh, I consult with big companies. It became clear to me that there were there's some new technologies that are around that business leaders, people in business in general, just didn't know what they were capable of doing, what kind of problems they could solve. And those technologies are artificial intelligence, augmented reality, blockchain technology, sensors and the Internet of Things, Autonomous machines, which is smart robots, cobots, which are collaborative robots, self-driving cars and trucks, passenger drones, and so on. And then finally, 5G and satellite networks, which connects all of those things together. 
So we're going to talk through most of those things, if not all of those. I, I tried to create uh, a conversation around each one of those because they're all so important. And so, as you know, I, I am prone to uh, read every word when I have an author on because I'm, you're also teaching me. And that's how that's how we actually um, I, I actually develop my own thinking really quick. We just got a question that just flashed. How would you define a futurist? Let's grab that real quick. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair question. Um, yeah, I, I don't sit in a darkened room and smoke peyote and think big thoughts. Uh, <laughs> okay. So it is a discipline um, where you look at the confluence of trends, uh, technology trends, business trends, new business models, new ways of doing business, but most importantly, people trends. What do people want? What are their aspirations? What are their relationships? How do they like to communicate? And you see how those come together over time and you're modeling what will be possible in a certain time frame. And from that, you build an innovation plan to make that happen. Brilliant. Lovely. Great question, listener. Thank you very much for that. Okay, let's get into it. As you saw in my, my what I lobbed over to you, I prepare for these kinds of conversations. So I'm going to I'm gonna read, be reading through some of the things that you have in your book and then ask you to comment on them because they're so crisp. So regarding artificial intelligence, I absolutely loved the depiction of you of what you wrote about the AlphaGo playing 18-time world champion Lee Sedol and beating him four to one. And so, and then this artificial intelligent fed technology and reinforcement learning de deployed several new strategies that went against hundreds of years of human wisdom among expert players. So that, that this was so cool. By observing AlphaGo's approach, human players have improved their play. So the lesson here, rather than consider AI a threat to our unique humanity and our value within the workplace, we can instead think of AI as a sophisticated partner, one that boosts our skills and that ultimately elevates our humanity. Say more about that. Yeah, I think we're always, because of what we read in the papers and maybe read in science fiction uh, or watch you know, great movies like Terminator or The Matrix, we are sort of pre-programmed to be afraid of artificial intelligence and to think that it's out there to get us somehow, uh, either to replace us, which will happen in some cases. There are some jobs that will be automated. But um, they're mostly low-level tasks that humans don't really want to do anyway. And I think the real magic of AI is in augmentation, which is working in partnership with humans to help us do better, to help us make work more meaningful, to give us superpowers, to help us you know, really engage differently in, in the workforce. And, and that example of the AI uh, playing Go in a new way, a very complex game, uh, ancient Chinese game, um, what it enabled the players to see is completely new strategies hmm. that they'd never seen before. And so AI, it's important to understand, AI is a tool that helps us solve problems we don't know how to solve ourselves and that gives us new ways of thinking about the world. And that's, that's a powerful concept people miss with AI. And what it leads me to think is, what's the big question we should ask ourselves, which is this. What can we learn from AIs rather than what can AIs learn from us? Mm, brilliant. So brilliant. Love that. Uh, well, speaking of that, one of the things I found extremely compelling, and this is also in part because I started my, my career in human capital um, 20 years ago in recruiting, but you talk about how Amazon built an experimental AI to surface candidates worthy of interviewing, but discovered it was biased against women. Um, and so that reflected historical bias in the hiring process. And so what you said, which I thought was so brilliant, is you said artificial intelligence can hold up, up a mirror to our own humanity. So if we think about it, we, we should, and the, yeah. then you go on to talk about holding our standards well for, against it. So say more about how we can better use AI and to be able to understand ourselves and our biases. Well, I think that was, that's a great example of how we can learn from AI again, because 
that AI um, that was looking through these resumes and picking which ones Amazon should interview and which ones they should pass on turned out to be very quickly biased against women. And now why why did the AI do that? Was it malevolent? Was it a naughty AI? No. <laughs> the AI learned from looking at historical hiring patterns at Amazon. So it held up a mirror to Amazon and the HR department looked at it and realized, oh wow, what this says is our historical hiring practices have been biased against women. So AIs are neither good nor bad. AIs are trained based on historical data. They learn from that data we provide them. And so their behaviors reflect the world they were trained in. Mm -hmm. And that means they reflect our behavior. So the same way that our children, uh, we hope that they will be better than us and we must have high ambitions for them. Um, so we have to have high ambitions for AIs to want them to be better than us, less biased, fairer, kinder, and so on. I think we can do that. But we need to be very mindful of how we train our AIs. Mm-hmm. I think that answer is very nice. We had some commentary here in the, in the chat room about, is it safe to let AI, AI into our world? And, and to which, what I hear you saying is, well, it's up to us. We're the ones that, that teach it. We're, 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 we feed it. So let's be careful what we actually feed that, quote, beast AI. Yeah, and uh, the, the more you get to know about AI, the more you realize how limited it is in some ways. And uh, certainly as I researched it over the last 10 years, I've become less fearful of it. I think it's natural because we've had a number done on us by Hollywood, Um, but uh, it is a very powerful technology. And so the question shouldn't be, do I fear this? Uh, It is, how do we train AIs to do the right thing for us? Because it is incredibly powerful. There's a good chance that one of your listeners right now will have their life saved in the future by a drug that was co-developed with help from an AI. Mm, That's so enticing. Okay, so let's move on then here. Let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about autonomous machines. You've got a whole chapter related to that. And I was really intrigued because about your, your talk about John Deere's view of how humans and machines should work together in the field, which is so awesome for me, having grown up on a farm, by the way. Um, and, you, and you talk about how this company aims to build equipment that pays as much attention to the farmer as the farmer has to pay attention to the equipment. And you talk about that human-machine symbiosis. And I got the image as I was reading that, Steve, of, of the tractor literally lovingly watching the farmer and sort of holding him as he's, he's, he's stewarding the, the machine. That's what I got when you wrote that. Yeah, I think it goes further than that. What it, the symbiosis is not just the tractor looking after the the farmer it is respecting the farmer mm-hmm. as its incredible source of wisdom and experience and not trying to automate that away but taking full advantage of that so you're creating this great symbiosis of a human and machine working together you know i spoke to the head of strategy at, uh, of embedded solutions at john Deere, and he was very generous with his time and his ideas and what he told me was they see the human machine connection as central to success in the fields in the future. Mm. And you know, if you think historically, it was success on the farm was about relationship between the farmer, their dog and their horse. Right. Or before that, you know, maybe cattle. Um, now it's a symbiotic relationship between smart, intelligent equipment and the farmer. And it's what you're doing is you're leveraging the farmer's experience, their incredible senses. You know, they can tell just by the vibration in the cab, in the tractor, if there's something not quite right with the way that the machine is working on the back. So you're not trying to replace that. You're trying to take advantage of that. And John Deere is really aiming to build machines 
that become a trusted partner of the farmer. So they're not subordinate to them. They become like a friend, like a partner in the fields. And that allows the farmer to focus on much higher level issues, like how to get the most out of the land, how to be a good steward of the land. Mm-hmm. Listeners and viewers, I hope that you find that as compelling and encouraging as I did when I read the book. I just think there's so much promise in this. And I think for probably a lot of you, you probably have in some in some ways at least seen technology as something to fear, which is what's happening here in the chat room. So I hope that this conversation is really elevating your ideas about the potential of how you can really leverage these technologies that Steve has written about. Exciting. So that brings me to the next thing I really wanted to talk about, which I, I've, I've been saying for quite some time now. Um, that you also write in your book, you say, uh, rather than using automation to replace human jobs, the goal of semi-automation is to build human-machine partnerships and elevate the world, of the work of humans. Um, and so, of course, there's always going to be a need to re- retool our skills, et cetera. But about, I've, I've always seen that for the last at least 10 years that technology allows us to kick ourselves upstairs. Yeah, I think that's very much true. Um, and to, to not have to do the stuff that's repetitive, boring, or not very rewarding to allow right. it to grow, you know. Um, and so the, the advice I give in the book is that every business, look at all their business processes, split those processes into individual tasks, and then assign out each task to either a human, a robot, or an AI, depending on which is best suited to that particular task. You know, you use robots where you need strength and stamina or to work in a dangerous environment. You use AIs when you need to find insights or complex patterns in vast troves of data or when you need to remove bias, for example. Um, what that allows the humans to focus on is that the things that machines aren't good at. And that tells us what we need to do when we're reskilling or upskilling to make sure that we remain relevant in the workplace of the future, it comes to really simple thing, doubling down on on our humanity and building the skills that machines don't have and in many cases will never have. So that's creativity, communications, critical thinking, empathy, uh, the ability to inspire others, to use your imagination, uh, planning skills, entrepreneurial skills, being adaptable, understanding all the weirdness of humanity that we call culture and all those sorts of things. So those are the kind of things that we should cling on to because they differentiate us from machines. And it turns out those are all the fun things to do anyway. Mm, I completely agree. Here, here, Steve. And again, very encouraging words. Um, All right. So next, I want to talk about something that I knew nothing about relative to blockchain. I knew nothing about that technology. But um, your view that you talk about in the book is your view of how the HTML computer language is akin to blockchain, which I now understand, thanks to you, is a distributed ledger technology. And it's that relationship, it's, 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 it's unleashing and cascading effects. And so you say blockchain is to trust and transactions as HTML is to information and the web. Say more about that. That is just fascinating and compelling to me. Yeah, so, I mean, both for many listeners, viewers today, you know, HTML they may have heard of if they're involved in web design, blockchain they may not well have heard of at all. Um, but I compare the two technologies because they're both these kind of boring but essential uh, plumbing that makes magical things possible online. So HTML is the technology that allows us to organize information on web pages and sort of define the functionality of all the amazing websites that we now take for granted. Blockchain is the technology magic that brings trust 
to the web. Uh, it's a way of storing information, uh, we call it immutably, which means you can't ever edit it. Um, so it's a foundational capability uh, needed when you handle transa transactions of any kind, to be able to store information and say, yep, okay, you wanna buy 100 shares, uh, they're gonna give me so much money for it, okay, let's, let's put that transaction down and we can't change that information. So the reason I compared the two is that the same way that HTML evolved over the years, you know, early web pages were just clickable catalogs of information, mm -hmm. like online magazines. If you think of the early days of Yahoo yeah. or something. Today's websites can handle video, animation, interactivity, and so much more. Blockchain is evolving in the same way to handle ever more sophisticated things, and it's being used for way more than just handling trusted transactions. So for those people who are listening who are who have maybe looked at blockchain technology and rejected it a few years ago, take another look because it's changed a lot and it's going to solve a lot of business problems going forward. So helpful, Steve. Again, thank you for making this. So the, these concepts, concepts that have been actually very large and scary for me, much more accessible. So thank you for that. With that, let's grab our first break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Steve Brown, who is a futurist, author, and consultant with 30 years of experience in high tech. He's the author of The Innovation Ultimatum, how six strategic technologies will reshape every business in the 2020s. It's a how-to guide on digital transformation. He joins us today from Portland, Oregon. We've been talking about, about some of the concepts in his book. We're going to keep going afterwards. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Steve Brown. He's a futurist, author, and consultant with 30 years of experience in high tech. He's the former futurist and chief evangelist at Intel Corporation, and he's the author of The Innovation Ultimatum, How Six Strategic Technologies Will Reshape Every Business in the 2020s. It's a how-to guide in digital transformation. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Okay, Steve, so I want to go on a little bit further about blockchain because, again, I had just no insight into it all. And you give a, a couple of different examples of how it's being used, one of which actually is related to um, digital voting. Tell us more about that. Yeah, this is one of the very early stages. This is not widely deployed yet. But yeah, I mentioned before the break that um, blockchain is a way of building trust where trust didn't exist previously mm -hmm. uh, because you have this immutable database of information. Um, and not only is the information immutable, meaning you can't edit it once you've put it in there, uh, but it's also time-stamped. And it's those capabilities that, are, that make a blockchain attractive as a way, as a foundation for building a digital voting system. Um, and you can use them, and, and I can talk about blockchains literally for hours. And <laughs> go to we've got. Um, just take it from me that you can use them to help establish people's identity digitally, uh, to reduce voter fraud, 
to eliminate voter suppression at the same time, um, and all the time while increasing access to democracy. This is what it makes it very attractive. Uh, it should make elections easier to audit and harder to manipulate, um, and yet maintain privacy for the voter. Uh, because the votes can be counted without compromising either privacy or security. So it's a pretty interesting system and idea. Um, and there are some interesting models being proposed. Um, Democracy.earth, uh, which is a website you can go look at, they're promoting this idea of direct democracy, where people get to vote on individual issues rather than voting for a candidate who then makes these decisions on their behalf. And in this platform they're imagining, you would be able to delegate your vote to a trusted friend or trusted person uh, who you think is an expert on that particular issue and you empower them to vote on your behalf. So there's a really interesting uh, democratic models being considered using blockchains. Mm-hmm. And you, you may be able to see this, this question coming up on the screen. What, what, what if you change your mind or push the wrong button? <laughs> that kind of a system. Yeah, that's that's kind of well. It's the same 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 problem with the system we have today. I'm not sure. That's true. That's right. Okay. All right. So I will tell you. I with this next thing I want to talk about here. I got so excited because I, when I was reading your book over the weekend, I was telling the friend that I was with about this, and I was just like off the charts about this. This is like opens my mind just writ large, and so. This, I found the, the collaboration quite interesting. So you talk about using tokens through a blockchain technology to create crypto shareholder virtual employees that work for free in return for potential future profit. You gotta share the story in your book about the guy who's building the, the new global payment system with seven full-time employees and 100 virtual em- employees. You gotta share that, that's awesome. Sure, so yeah, I met this guy literally in the coffee shop across the road from my house here. And he was building an online payment system that he hoped one day would compete with the likes of Visa and MasterCard uh, and that would handle all currencies. So all fiat currencies, dollars and euros, whatever, and all cryptocurrencies for payment. So he had seven, all he could afford was seven full-time employees, but he'd engaged another 100 or more as a virtual workforce. So they were all working for free. He wasn't paying them a salary. But in return for contributing their time, for contributing code to the platform that he was building, they got these tokens in return. And so that's basically a stake in the company. And the value of those tokens, the way that blockchains work, is that the value of the tokens reflects the value that you're building on top of the blockchain platform. So if his company takes off and is wildly successful and competes with Visa 15 years from now, all of the tokens that those people own are going to be worth a lot of money. So it's a new model for employing people um, that lets them spend part of their time working on you know, riskier projects that they believe in, that they think can make possible. Um, so there are rewards for success, uh, not for effort per se. Uh, but in, the reason it's interesting, I think, is it enables startups like this guy's mm-hmm. payment startup to scale quickly even when they have limited cash flow. And it enables us as workers to just, you know, have a go and uh, and play in these startups and maybe have big rewards if they're successful. Mm, right, it gives startups, it gives, it gives anybody across the world accessibility to a startup, which is incredibly exciting, right? Right, um, exactly. So I, I literally really, my poor friend, I talked a lot about this this weekend, and he was like, all right, are you done talking about this? I'm ready to go on to the next subject. Um, okay. Um, all right. So now I want you to talk to us and distinguish for us about what virtual, augmented, and mixed reality are and why they're important. 
Sure. So some of some of you may have tried virtual reality, which is you put on a headset and you are completely immersed in a digital reality. You feel like you're somewhere else. Um, could be on a different planet, could be inside a game, whatever it might be. And you're cut off from the physical world around you. You can't see the environment you're in. Augmented reality instead overlays information on your view of the world. So you might look on an augmented rea reality app on your phone and see objects that don't exist. If you think about the Pokemon Go app that was popular a few years ago. Um, mixed reality takes augmented reality a little further and it's much more sophisticated in the way that it operates. So it blends objects intelligently in your view of the world. So you put on a pair of magic glasses and now when I look at an object, let's say it's on my coffee table, if I put something in front of it, it'll disappear behind it. Mm. So it, it feels like that digital object is actually there. Um, the augmented reality term has become a catch-all for this mixed reality thing as well. But I think augmented reality is important because it doesn't, it's really useful in the world of work because you're not disconnected from the work environment and you can get additional information overlaid on top of your view of the world that can help you do your work. Mm. So as, as I was reading that part, Steve, one thing that I was thinking about was, gosh, I, I want to I find ways to be able to incorporate those technologies or some semblance of those technologies in the courses that I'm doing now online for individuals and companies. I thought, oh my gosh, that's so, it would be so great now that we, we know that we can do these things virtually to be able to add that kind of experience. So you really spark something in, in me. I have no idea what this is going to look like, but I can thank you for giving me that idea. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's exciting. Um, all right, and another kind of analogy and, and comparison here that I think is worth talking about. You write, if artificial intelligence is the new computer and blockchain is the new network, then augmented reality will become the new display. So help us understand the promise of augmented reality and how it can be applied in the workplace especially, if you would. Yeah, I mean, very often if, if we do use computers in the workplace, we're using you know, information is presented to us in two dimensions on a flat screen, whether it's a computer screen, uh, a phone screen, a tablet screen or something like that. Um, now, for most people, you know, our primary sense is our visual sense. So we have an opportunity to have a much better interface between computers and humans if we can optimize that visual interface. So rather than the display be trapped inside a rectangle, what if I could just overlay information on the entire field of view and the world around me? Mm. Uh, I can think about my interfaces as a much broader palette. And AR, so AR doesn't take you away from that connection, as I mentioned, with your physical surroundings. And it gives you this notion of being able to create what I call in the book, a hybrid worker a combination of human experience and intelligence and machine intelligence and the vast knowledge store and capabilities of the cloud. So that the ideal interface between those two, so if you imagine a repair worker going out into the field to work on a robot, maybe it's a robot model they've never seen before. Rather than have to thumb through a manual and get figure out what to do they put on their glasses it shows them okay open this flap look here pull out this circuit board inspect this check these connections and walks them through step by step visually showing them in the moment what to do so it's almost like real-time training in the moment if for those people people have watched the, the movie the matrix it's mm -hmm. a little bit like that where you, you know you plug in there's no spike has to go in the back of your head in this model which is better goodness yeah but you know you could be it's the same idea of instantly being able to learn how to do something as you're shown step by step by the ai through augmented reality exactly what to do so you can learn along the way 
Mm-hmm. That's so exciting, right? If that doesn't open your eyes, listeners and viewers, to possibility and get you excited, I don't know what's going to do it for you. This is so <laughs> great. Um, okay, speaking of exciting, and this also was really riveting for me, uh, you talk about uh, the promise of virtual reality driving healthcare. So you've got, you've got, I love how you've got different chapters based on different industries, healthcare being one of them. Mm-hmm. But you talk about the studies between Duke University and the University of Sao Paulo and the work they're doing on chronic spinal cord injuries. Um, I thought that that whole idea of that kind of collaboration and the possibilities for those emerging technologies were, were I don't know, it's so so inspiring and awesome that I, I was stunned by them. Say, say more about what they're doing and what's actually happening there. Yeah, virtual reality has all kinds of therapeutic benefits from people with PTSD and treating them um, to just training people to react correctly in the moment. Um, the Walmart uh, shooting incident in Santa Fe, I think it was, three years or so ago, the Walmart staff there said, hey, if we hadn't been trained um, in these virtual reality headsets, we would not have responded so quickly to the situation and wouldn't have saved all those lives. So it's great for simulating things, but it's also great for tricking our brains. So what they did with the University of Sao Paulo and Duke, they took patients who had spinal cord injuries uh, and they immersed them in this therapeutic simulation, uh, which was designed to improve the mobility of their lower limbs. So they were fitted with a brain machine interface, which is just a little helmet that goes on and senses electrical um, activity in, in the brain, an exoskeleton, which they fit onto their legs, which you know, would move their legs around, and then a VR headset that showed them a virtual pair of legs. So they were just looking down as if they had a fully functional, normal pair of legs and without an exoskeleton on them. The, the brain machine interface was then used to control the exoskeleton. And in the VR, they saw the movements of the exoskeleton mirrored uh, in, in the simulation. The act of seeing virtual legs move inside a simulation led patients, they quickly learned how to control the exoskeleton legs using the interface, and it formed new pathways in the brain cortex and in the undamaged nerves in the spinal column. And after extensive training, you know, they were able to remove the brain machine interface and the exoskeleton and the VR headset, and some patients regained limited control and sensation in their legs just by being simulated and tricked into thinking that they could do this. It's just phenomenal. What I what I really appreciate about that story, and you just narrated it so beautifully from the book, uh, is that it, it's just uh, here's a great illustration of how technology really can raise us, really can pull us up, right? It's such a it's such a beautiful contribution, and, and I don't know anything about that at the healthcare space. I never worked in that, but and I can't imagine what it'd be like not to be able to move my legs. I love to run and love to move, but the idea of being able to see the promise of using that kind of technology for something like that is it's really compelling. Yeah, the healthcare industry is going to change dramatically in the next 15 years, and I couldn't be more excited about it. It's one of the sectors I spend a lot of time thinking about and working in, and AI is going to completely transform it, and the other technologies will play a big part too. Mm, can't wait. I'm sure every one of us on this on, on this call or this video will in some way be, be um, will experience those, those changes and those upgrades, so it's pretty exciting. Um, all right, so now, and you, you would have been sort of saying this here, but I want to bring it home for our listeners for this last, this uh, second segment here. But you talk about every organization will need a labor augmentation strategy, elevating your workers by augmenting them with superpowers. What's not to love about that? I mean, I love the idea of being able to bring out people's greatness, and if technology helps us do that, I'm in. 
Yeah, I think if 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 leaders of companies just look at these technologies as a way to save costs and to remove labor from the equation, they failed. And they might get some short-term gains, but all the studies I've seen show the, the best in business impact in the medium to long term is when you have an augmentation strategy, when you're looking at how to use technology to elevate your talent. And really, when you're thinking about these superpowers and, and boosting our abilities, it is our cognitive abilities, our physical abilities, and then our sensing abilities, our ability to see and, and experience the world. So I'll give you some examples. Um, see-through, uh, the letter C and then T-H-R-U, they're a company building uh, headsets for firefighters. And they enhance the senses when they are in a smoky environment and allow them to see edges and shapes through smoke. And they're able to get in and out of buildings when they're doing rescues five times faster using this in, you know, enhanced sensing capability. Um, construction workers are starting to use exoskeletons to allow them to lift weights uh, of up to 200 pounds uh, as if they were just like a feather. Uh, and AIs are being used to boost our creativity and our, and our imagination. Uh, Autodesk has created a suite of design tools that use augmented reality to, to take the design, the initial design that the, the designer creates, riff on it and create hundreds or thousands of alternatives and say, hey, what if you did it this way? What if you did it that way? And so the designer has all of these choices to look at. And when designers first used these tools, it was expected they'd be more productive and, and they were. But what surprised Autodesk is that they said, this makes me feel so much more creative. This liberates my creativity and my imagination. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, I love that. I'm in for that. And we have more to talk about that toward the end of our conversation. And with that, let's grab our last break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on air with Steve Brown, who is a futurist, author, and consultant with 30 years of experience in high tech. He's the author of the book entitled The Innovation Ultimatum, How Six Strategic Technologies Will Reshape Every Business in the 2020s. It's a how-to guide on digital transformation. He joins today from Portland, Oregon. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Steve Brown. He's a futurist, author, and consultant with 30 years of experience in high tech. He is the former futurist and chief evangelist at Intel Corporation, and he's the author of The Innovation Ultimatum, How Six Strategic Technologies Will Reshape Every Business in the 2020s. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Okay, so for this last um, part of our conversation, Steve, it goes so fast, right? I told you it would. Um, I want to assuage maybe some of the concerns that people have about worrying about inculcate or adding AI and these technologies to their lives and their business. Uh, and I want to address some of the important ways that you steward the conversation and how, how you're suggesting companies plan for that. 
And so um, you say, as, business deploy, as businesses deploy artificial intelligence, leaders will need to stay laser-focused on their core, humanistic purpose, and communicate it clearly and relentlessly to every employee. AIs learn from historical data and from historical behaviors and thus reflect human bias and values. If your employees aren't fully aligned with your purpose, mission, vision, and values, your AIs won't be either. Yep, pretty much. Um, so as I was saying earlier in the show, right, um, just like kids, AIs learn from observing the behavior of others. And without clear rules and setting a good example, kids turn into brats. And the same applies to AIs. So when AIs are being installed in an organization and they're being trained, it's really important that the humans training them are acting as we would want the AIs to act. And so having a really strong culture, uh, a strong set of values that you communicate relentlessly to employees, that you, you reward them for, for their behavior to values, and setting a clear purpose so that everybody in the organization knows what to do and how to behave. Um, if you can do that, then your AIs are gonna learn from that and they're gonna behave as you would hope them to. And they can, you know, you're gonna onboard them as team members who are living the culture and become examples from the humans to then learn from. Mm-hmm. So we really need very aware people who are stewarding that process, very aware of their own biases, which we all have, right? And to the extent that they can right. and, 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 and conscientiously steward that process. That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I think uh, we have to be very mindful. Uh, these are powerful technologies. We can do incredible, powerful good with them. But if we're not thoughtful about the way we build these technologies, they could have consequences we don't want. And you know, we all worry about that. But I think if we're mindful and really thoughtful about how we train these AIs and help us to, to be the best that we can be, uh, and to be, be, be even better than us, uh, then we can build something really lasting and wonderful. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Steve, because people do, as you well know from your work and your experience, fear these things because they don't understand them and they're unknown. So what I'm really hearing from you is the extent to which we as humans need to really step our, our game up as well to help steward this process along here so that it's it's done in the most conscientious, purposeful fashion as we can as we can make it. Yeah, we should be cautious but not fearful. Beautiful, beautiful. So, and then you've—we've got some questions about how to how to how to start to access these technologies, and I think this next question will help. Um, you do say that any major automation effort should involve ethnographers and experienced designers on the front end of the project to understand the important steps where the innate humanity of the organization adds value within the business processes. And you say poor awareness of where humans add unique value may lead to over-automated business processes that destroy market differentiation and reduce the company's ability to deliver against their brand promise and purpose. That's incredibly powerful to understand, Steve. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the historical role that information technology has played in the workplace. It was largely deployed to boost efficiency and productivity, uh, which in turn, you know, went into low costs and that improved profitability. And it can be very easy for business leaders to fall back on that approach again. And I think that would be uh, leaving um, benefit on the table because, you know, these new technologies that are talking about in the book will yield further productivity gains, no doubt about it, but they can do so much more. And I think if leaders, uh, rather than just sort of automate away labor wherever they can in, short of, in, in pursuit of short-term profit, they should set themselves up to try to look beyond that because 
What they're likely to do is to automate away all the humanity, all the things that differentiate their company, their brand, uh, the way they interact with customers, uh, automate that away. And then what they're removing then is their differentiation versus the competition. What that leads to then is a race to the bottom on price, which is you know, not good for anybody. Because if we assume that all competitors have similar access to technology and capital, they're going to strip away the differentiation of their brands, which is their humanity. And that's just not good for customers, employees, or shareholders. Mm-hmm. And I hope, again, listeners and viewers, that you find that encouraging. Uh, I certainly do. So I, I hope that you recognize that you are absolutely needed and wanted in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, without humans, um, most businesses just, they're nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, an important distinction. And then going further on here, when we start playing this way out in the future here, I was really, really fascinated with what you said about um, the notion that if more machines produce a lot of what we need and workers don't do those jobs to earn wages, then taxes to government are reduced. And and you talk about people like Sir Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Hawking, and Ray Kurzweil, Will, who have concluded that some kind of universal basic income will be required to, to the future to, due to automation. Now, I've heard a little bit about, about UBI, but I knew nothing about it. Can you say a little bit more about this topic? It's fascinating. Yeah, and we're sort of straying into the realm of politics here, which I try and stay out of. But, you know, it, it is it is a potential consequence of automation gone wild, mm-hmm. is that suddenly, you know, there, there just aren't enough jobs for us. And if that happens, which I don't think does happen, I think we see some automation, uh, we're going to have to support people somehow. And so this notion of universal basic income, where everybody just gets a basic amount of money to be able to live their lives. And then if they want to top up from that, they have to work uh, if they can find employment. I think the way it will likely play out is that while many jobs will be augmented, i.e. You know, a lot of stuff we've talked about in the last 25 minutes or so, some jobs will be automated. And, and for those people, they're going to need to reskill and upskill to remain re- relevant in the workplace. So as they do that, some people are going to need support. Um, and maybe UBI comes in for those people. And some people will just not be able to make the leap for whatever reason. Um, so it's, UBI is just one of a number of ideas to help support people either, either while they train uh, to gain the skills they need or in some cases you know, they might need that support permanently but there are other ideas too you know taxing robots if this is bill gates's idea if a robot replaces a person who makes seventy five thousand dollars a year okay tax that robot as if it was earning seventy five thousand dollars mm, a year interesting and then the idea of negative income tax so supplemental money from the government for people who earn below a certain threshold sort of flipping the idea of income tax upside down yeah, it's and again, you know, like you said, we're, we are getting to the role of politics, and I want to stay away from that as well. But they are very interesting ideas that need to be considered and pondered and thought through. So now we sprinkled something in there for our listeners and viewers who want to take it from there. But And to that end, you've sort of hinted at this in the last thing you were talking about, but you, you say in your book that technology has always created more jobs than it has destroyed. Um, and typically, these new jobs require higher level of skill and create more value and thus command higher wages. And so the adult education programs will be vital for society to safely navigate this transition. And you've got a whole chapter dedicated to education, which I really appreciated. I read everything. I read it a couple of times. Um, talk to us more about that, because one of the things that I, in my work that I do around um, uh, growth and transformation is, you know, for me, you're never done growing, right? You, and I love the idea of forever learning. For some people, that's really scary, and that's not really that interesting. So can you talk to us a bit about how you see this ongoing adult education really playing out and working well? for us 
Yeah, I think it's clear that people will need a higher level of education going forward for many roles. And the, the era of you know, a two-year um, college degree or a four-year higher education degree, that paradigm is, is gone. Um, what makes more sense is this idea of lifelong learning, and that becomes the norm. And maybe we have a relationship with higher educational um, or just educational groups that help us to continue to grow throughout our lives. And so it redefines the relationship between the world of education and people. Um, so to do that, we will have to retool our education system. And the education system has to step up. It's been pretty much the same for 200 years. You know, it was designed to move people out of fields and into factories and offices. And it, we now live in the internet era. We could completely rethink the way that we deliver uh, education. Uh, and I think the opportunity there is to deliver a high quality education at far lower cost than it, that we do today. Make it far more accessible to people. And I think business will also need to play a role. Um, the Business Roundtable met last year. They had this idea of stakeholder capitalism. And one of the things they explicitly acknowledge in there is business's role in helping their employees to constantly grow and develop new skills and that business needs to fund and support that. So I think it's going to be something that everybody has to play a part in, but we're all going to be along for a ride of constantly learning and improving. Yes, and to that end, I was pleased that you brought that up because I did. I, when that uh, new statement came out on August 19th last year, I was immediately on that and found that quite compelling and interesting and, and um, inspiring as, as a possibility. And now I see more and more conversations around stakeholder con capitalism, uh, conscious capitalism, and really business stewarding a world, helping to steward a world that we all want to live in. And, and we do need businesses' help to continue to grow and learn. So I was very encouraged by that, too. Um, we're coming close to out of time here, Steve, and I want to be sure and ask you this. You, you talk about uh, in order to thrive in the post-automation economy, we need a 21st century psyche, which I thought was fantastic. And you say we need to be adaptable, mobile, constantly curious, optimistic, and always learning, plus take charge of our own destiny, be tenacious, and have grit. Uh, completely agree. And, and and some of that really gets, gets to what you were saying before about really pulling out and and calling ourselves into our full humanity to be able to work alongside technology. So tell us more about this 21st century psych. Yeah, it's, so the number one um, question I get when I, when I meet with people and do events is, should I be afraid of AI? Mm -hmm. I hope we've touched a little bit on today. The answer mm -hmm. is no. Um, the second most important question I get, or common question I get is, how essentially some version of, how do I become robot proof? Or, or how do, what do I tell my children or my grandchildren to help them become robot-proof so that they will be relevant in the workforce? And I think it really takes an attitude of owning your own career, being self-motivated, but working to develop the skills, pay attention. What are the skills you need to complement technology as technology con continues to improve over time? And they're the things we talked about in the previous block, right? It's the, the four C's of creativity, communication, collaboration, critical thinking. But it's also things like empathy and adaptability and that, that ability to be open to always learning, to be positive and optimistic, uh, and to always want to learn more. Um, and be curious. Constant curiosity, I think, is what will power people to have the most fulfilling uh, careers going forward. 
Well, that's one of the major reasons I host this show five, five and a half years in. You are episode number 299, so I'm slightly curious. Um, I love it. I absolutely love sharing what, what I learn with my listeners and viewers across the world. It's amazing. And on that note, see, here we are at the end. I want to give you the last word. You know the show is listened to across the world. People are looking to be able to learn how to access more meaning and purpose in their lives and their leadership and their business. What do you want to leave them with? I think the biggest and most important thing is don't be afraid of technology and what it can do for us. Because the more you understand, the more I think you'll find you're optimistic about the future, uh, as I am, and the more relevant you will be in the workplace when you understand it. And that's why I wrote this book, to, to empower people, leaders in particular, with the information they need so they can ask informed questions, understand what problems can be solved with the latest wave of technology and to just be inspired. I mean, there are AIs out there that can hear disease in the sound of your voice. If that doesn't inspire you and think about how that could save millions of lives by catching things early, just by listening in a microphone to be able to literally hear um, chronic heart failure, coronary artery disease, they're optimistic in the future, hypertension, diabetes, and even cancer, just in the sound of your voice. These are the types of opportunities we have when we, when we embrace these technologies. And I'm excited to see where the next 10, 15 years takes us. I am too, Steve. And you know, the world is a better place with you in it. I'm so glad we've crossed paths. I'm very grateful for your book. And listeners, viewers, please pick it up. It's, it's dynamic. It will change your life. If you want to learn more about Steve Brown, his book, The Innovation Ultimatum, or to his consulting work he does at Possibility and Purpose, start by visiting thebaldfuturist.com, or it's actually baldfuturist.com, not a the in front of it. Love that you call yourself that, by the way. <laughs> Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via recorded podcast. We turned the mic around, and previous guest, Danny Gutnick of Pathways, essence mind me about my own path to purpose and he gave me some new insights about my path and got me to admit that my second great dream of what I would become in life thank goodness that didn't happen came to pass um, listen in and see what you think next week we'll be on air with Joanne Heyman and hear about the work she does helping women transition from jobs to working on purpose see you there remember that works at least a third of our lives so let's work on purpose We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.